We want you to know God as he is. It's our highest value as a church. We've identified five highest values, but really among those five, the highest is that we want you to know God as he is. We want you to know the Father in his transcendence, in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, in his glory. We want you to know the Son in his humility, in his servant-heartedness, in his power and strength. We want you to identify with the sufferings. And we want you to know the Spirit of God. We want you to every day wake up and crave an interaction with the helper, the comforter, the one who imparts gifts to you so that you might be empowered to serve. We want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you'd walk in power and strength and confidence and boldness. We want you to, to, to long to hear the voice of the Spirit and to wait on him. We want you to know God as he is. And so in these weeks where Focusing on the third person of the Trinity, the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, our helper. Last week we talked about the fact that he, that he is not alone, not apart from the Father, not apart from the Son, but the Holy Spirit saves us. And we looked at his role in saving us, testifying to Jesus and pointing us to him. We looked at his regenerating work, that salvation is a work, not just, it's not just a work of, of mental agreement with a set of facts about Jesus, but it is a rebirth. It is a, a, a work in the deepest part of a human being. And that apart from that work, no one will come before the Father. That that's what salvation truly is, is this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to go from a place of being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We looked at that reality. My prayer this week has been that some of you have been wrestling with that. Some of you have been wrestling with that. You know, we want very much for those of you who are followers of Jesus to be assured that you are in him, that you are his. We want you to have that confidence. We want you to know it. We don't want you, we don't want you to think it was a mistake that he saved you. We want you to know it. But at the same time, friends, we don't want to give you false assurance if you're not in him but think you are. It's a scary thing sometimes to encounter those texts in the scripture where it says there will be people who drove out demons in the name of Jesus and he'll say, I knew you not. We want you to walk in the assurance of the work of the Spirit that he's saved you. And so today I wanna to talk to you about a second work of the Spirit, not that he just saves you, but that he also keeps you. The Holy Spirit does a keeping work. For all those who are in Christ, he keeps us in Christ. We don't do it ourselves, we don't do it through the strength of our convictions, we don't do it through our giftedness or our insight or our wisdom. It is the very Spirit of God that keeps us in Christ until the day we are with him in eternity, whether that's because we die and exit this life and enter his presence or because he returns. It is the Spirit of God who keeps us and my hope is as you investigate the word with me today that you will find 
that you have great reason to be assured and to walk in confidence that the Spirit of God is able to keep all those who belong to God. Listen to the words of Colossians chapter 1. Verse 22 and 23, we're going to be primarily in Ephesians 1, so if you want to turn there, but I want you to hear Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Actually, I'll begin in verse 21. It says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So there's the work of Jesus. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Did you catch the if there? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, when you read texts like that, one of the things that should come to mind is, what hope do I have knowing my weakness, knowing my fickleness, knowing my tendencies, what hope do I have that I will remain stable and steadfast in the faith so that I might receive the reward that the gospel has promised me. Do you, do you hear me? What, what hope do we have? And the hope that the word of God offers us today is this. The Holy Spirit is able to keep all those who belong to God. He's able to keep. We call this, in theological terms, the perseverance of the saints. So let me tell you what the keeping work or the perseverance of the saints, let me, let me tell you what it really means in, in layman's terms. It means this. It means that, that the Spirit of God will cause all those who are in Christ, who are truly in Christ, will cause all those who are in Christ to persevere to the end. So we use this phrase, we say, once saved, always saved. Have you heard that phrase? And I think sometimes we think it means that if I said a prayer once, then I'm good forever. But really, what the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is, is not once saved, always saved because I said a prayer. It is the assurance that the Spirit of God is so powerful and so strong that those in whom he has done a regenerating work, he is able to sustain in Christ, to cause them to persevere in Christ throughout their entire lives until he or until he returns. And that he will cause you to persevere because you must persevere. One of the things that is so evident in scriptures like Colossians chapter one or Matthew chapter 10 is that we must persevere to the end if we are going to be saved. But the great assurance we have is that all those who are truly saved will persevere because the spirit will cause them to persevere. Are you with me? What a great assurance we have in the Spirit of God. So let's look at the keeping work of the Holy Spirit then today. In Ephesians chapter one, predominantly, we'll look a little bit at Romans five as well. So how does the Spirit keep us? That, that's, that's the thesis today, right? The Spirit is able to keep us. So how does the Spirit do this? So look with me at Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 and 14. And the first thing we see, the first answer to that question that we see is that the Spirit keeps us by sealing us. The Spirit keeps us 
by sealing us. If you grab the sermon notes today on your way in, you'll see that that's the first point. And I want you to follow with me now. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. And let's examine what does that mean? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit seals us? In verse 13, it says, in him you also, in Christ it means when it says in him, in him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now listen, here's, here's what we just heard there. When we believed the gospel, when we heard the good news that Jesus crucified and resurrected, if we would have faith in him, we place our trust in him, that we could have eternal life, that we could be reconciled to the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. That when we heard it and believed it, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's an it's a interesting concept, and I want to try and unpack that for us today and explain what it means. And then it says that the Holy Spirit, that sealing work that the Holy Spirit does is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so now it looks to salvation as something that has happened. We believed, and so we were saved. But then it also looks to the fulfillment of our salvation. The ultimate fulfillment of it is the inheritance we'll receive when we enter into the presence of God. That we will receive eternal life and reward and joy in the presence of God and all those things are in our inheritance and we're waiting for them, yes? So our salvation is both something that has occurred and is real and is past tense and it is also, the Bible talks about, something that is future tense, something that is going to transpire that we are going to receive as an inheritance. So that's an important thing that we understand that salvation is not a past tense reality. It's past, it's present, and it is future. That's what, the way we should think about our salvation. Now, so he says the Holy Spirit seals us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And in being sealed then, it is the guarantee, that sealing work is the guarantee of our inheritance that we will receive. And so let's look at what it means to be sealed. The first thing, when we hear this word seal, and we say, well, what does that mean? The first thing that seal is, is it's a mark of authenticity, the seal of the Holy Spirit is a mark of authenticity. And what that means is that the, the Spirit, let me let's see if I can say it as plainly as possible. Every Christian, every true follower of Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. But no one who is not a Christian, excuse the double negative, receives the Holy Spirit. Therefore, since the Holy Spirit is only in Christians and not in those who are not Christians, only those who possess the Spirit are authentically a Christian. There is no two-part, you're a Christian without the Spirit because you believe something and then one day you get the Spirit later and, and so then now you're some kind of extra special Christian or something like that. All those who are in Christ receive the Spirit because he is the authenticating mark of the fact that you are in Christ. He is the thing that, we're, we're all into something that's authentic, right? Anybody want something that's not authentic? I, I've yet to see the person that shops online or goes to the store and goes, give me, give me the non-authentic thing, right? Everybody's looking for the real deal, the thing that is authentically true and, and good and it's the, it's the actual product that you were wanting to get, right? And the Spirit is the authenticating mark. That's the first thing it means when it says the Holy Spirit is our seal, it means it, the Holy Spirit is the, is the mark upon us that says, 
This is authentically someone who is in Christ. I was thinking about this. I, I took a group of students to China years and years ago. And, and uh, one of my favorite students I ever had is a kid named Walker Glasgow. Great kid. And uh, we, were, we were at the end of this trip, we were shopping in this market and it was like seven stories high. And I mean, it was the craziest place I've ever shopped in my life. I'm talking about floors of electronics followed by floors of like shoes. One lady beat me with a shoe to try and get me to buy the shoe. So I walked past her. I'm not kidding. She couldn't get my attention. She literally slapped me with a shoe. They had pearls and all this kind of stuff. Well, on one floor, they had just kind of, I don't know if you call it camping gear. They just had all this different stuff. Well, they had backpacks and Walker had really wanted a North Face backpack, an authentic North Face backpack. That's really what Walker wanted. He said, that's the one thing I want to find here. We can probably get it cheap. So, so we're walking past all these stalls of vendors and, they all, and several of them have just, just backpacks galore, but none of them have any logos on them. None of them have any marks on them telling you, you know, what brand they are. And so finally we walk up to one of the stalls and, you know, in, we don't have any Chinese and she's got better English and we have Chinese. And so we're communicating in kind of a broken fashion. And I said, do you have North Face, North Face backpacks? She said, yes, yes, you choose. And I said, well, no, no, do you have like North Face backpacks? And she's like, yes, you choose. And like, none of those say North Face. She's like, yes, we, we make it say North Face. I was like, Walker, I don't think we're getting an authentic North Face backpack in this market. He's like, yeah, I think you're right, right? And so, you know, we walk away. But, you know, when you go to the store, right, it's, it's the logo on the outside. It's the North Face logo that tells you, like, this is authentically a North Face backpack. Well, the Holy Spirit is not, okay, in the same way that that's an authenticating mark, the Holy Spirit is an authenticating mark, but the Holy Spirit is not a, um, an, an outside logo that can be etched onto any bag. The Holy Spirit is an indelible mark, an indelible, irremovable mark in the heart and soul of a human being that authenticates them as truly in Christ. You follow me? Now you think, well, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit's keeping power? You're talking about he's, he's the mark of authenticity. What does that have to do with the Holy Spirit's ability to keep me in Christ, to cause me to persevere? Well, what I would say to that is, it's a great question. Number one, I want you to understand that you have to, you have to know you are in Christ before you can persevere in Christ. You have to know that you are in Christ, that the authenticating mark is on you, in you, before you can persevere. And as I said before, been praying this for you, that, that none of you, that every single one of you who possesses the Spirit of God would now hear this and respond, praise God, I have the authenticating mark. I am in Christ, and you would feel assured. But every one of you who does not possess the Spirit of God would recognize that you are not in Christ. Whatever you have said or done, growing up in church, if the Spirit of God is not in you, you are not in Christ. You know, one day, if you, if you walk with Jesus, one day you're gonna be beside, you're probably more than once, you're gonna be beside some hospital beds. And do you know the kind of conversation you're gonna have at the side of those hospital beds with people you love and care about? You're gonna have the, question, the, the conversation about assurance. 
That's the conversation. Can I prepare you for that? You're gonna have a conversation about assurance. How can I know the cancer is here, old age, seems to have maybe reached its end now with me. The accident has happened. And perhaps I'm not long for this life. And the conversation you will have with many is a conversation about how can I be sure? How can I be sure? There's a lot of answers to that question, but we're focused on the Holy Spirit today. I'm gonna give you two. In Romans 8, we are told that the Holy Spirit testifies in the inner being that we are children of God. That for those in whom the Holy Spirit resides, the Holy Spirit internally says to you, you are God's child. You can call him father. He testifies that to you. I, can't, I cannot declare to you enough assurance from the outside. It has to be the Spirit internally communicating to you that you are God's. Is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit in you, friend? If you stop and pause and say, Holy Spirit, am I a child of God? Does the Holy Spirit speak back to you? He is your father. Because that's what the word of God tells us he does. He testifies. You are a child of God. The second thing that the Spirit does is he produces godly character in the people of God. The Spirit produces love and joy and peace and patience. And some of you, this is sounding familiar. Galatians 5, 22. He produces the fruit of the Spirit. Not perfectly. Our assurance does not come from perfectly walking in love. Our assurance does not come from perfectly walking in peace. Our assurance does not come from somehow perfecting the fruit of the Spirit, but the general trajectory of the life of someone in whom the Spirit of God resides is to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is where it's good to have people who know you well around you to testify. Is the fruit of the Spirit, is it growing in me? One way to know that, friends, is when you interact with people, do you, does your presence in people's lives, does it seem to build them up or tear them down? Does your presence in a conversation, in a relationship, in your place of work, does it seem to, to build others up, to make them want more of Jesus, to move towards him, to sense more of who he is, or does it seem to tear them back, pull them back because of a spirit of criticism, critique, fearfulness, anger, legalism? Now here's the deal, as your pastor, I really, there's a part of me that really wishes that I could sit one-to-one with each one of you, get you to talk to me, and then go, yep, you're good. There's a part of me that wishes, I mean, there's really, there really is. It's stupid that I, will, that I want that, because that would be a lot of meetings. But there, there is a part of me, because I, I just, I want you to walk with God. And I want, I don't want anyone who God ever said, Trent, shepherd them, to ever ever end up in his presence and hear him say, I knew you not. 
That scares me. I can't do that. Spirit of God is the authenticating mark. And I'm just begging you to be honest before God and to say, Spirit, do you testify that I am in Christ and listen? And if there is no interaction with the Spirit, if there is, if, if you recognize there is a void of any testimony of the Spirit in me, then fall on your knees and cry out to God and say, I need you, Christ. I need you. Do a work of rebirth in me. He will come and do it. Be assured. He will come and do it. You cannot cry out to God and say, cause me to be reborn. Do a work in me. Send your spirit and let him dwell in me. I am yours. If you genuinely cry out to God and ask him, he, he will do it. You can be assured. It's not, God, he doesn't make mistakes. Some of you might have walked out of here last week thinking like, man, okay, we're talking about the salvation that the Holy Spirit works and, you know, quite frankly, I, I'm not that good a Christian. Did God, make a, like, did God make a mistake when he saved me? And one of the evidences that God doesn't make mistakes when he saves a person, I mean, truly, genuinely saves a person, is that he keeps all that he saves, right? When I was, in, when I was 12, my dad was my, my baseball coach on my, my little league team, my 12-year-old little league team. And uh, it was me and my buddy Casey Smith and our dads were the coaches, so we were automatically on the team. And they had the draft and you know, they had the evaluations before the draft and, and you evaluate the players. And there was a young kid named Brian Harris. God bless him, which is what a Texan says before they're about to insult you. I am sure that today Brian Harris is probably a brilliant engineer or a, a master poet or something. But Brian Harris is the worst baseball player I've ever seen in my life. Dude did not have a hit the entire year. During the invalidation, <laughs> oh, it's okay. I'm sure he's great at something. Brian was a really bad baseball player. So my dad goes to the draft. We have the first pick in the draft. And I'm thinking we are like, we're really in the running here, right? And it tells you how competitive that I'm, that I still think back to these things. I think we're really in the running. We are really in the running this year. We've got a solid team. I mean, the Dodgers are going to be good. Drew and Brian, they're good, but I think we can take them. All right? Yeah, I still remember who's on what team. It's fine. So do you. Don't even pretend. <laughs> and my dad is the first pick in the draft. All right? The first pick in the draft. He's a value of the players. And, he's, and they gave him all sheets, right? And then you put the name of the player and you put down, you know, one to five, fielding, hitting, whatever. With the number one pick in the draft, my dad says, I take Brian Harris. I'd love to say this because my dad's a godly man. It's because my dad took the scores of the kid that was above Brian Harris and put them in Brian Harris's line. Every single coach in the room went, you take who? Brian Harris was a mistake. Maybe we would have had him at the end of the draft, right? But here's the deal. My dad may have made a mistake with the number one pick in the draft. Brian Harris was probably not the number one pick in the draft, all right? But do you know what? God did not make a mistake when he chose you. He did not make a mistake when he chose you. And he is keeping you 
and causing you to persevere so that you would rest in assurance that you are his, okay? I'm realizing that illustration is really silly for the point I wanted to make, so please just forget it if it doesn't help you, okay? Sometimes the illustration is not helpful. A second thing it means to be sealed in the spirit, okay? Second thing it means to be sealed in the spirit. It means authenticating Mark, that's the first thing. The second thing it means is to be guarded, is to be guarded in the faith by the spirit. So when you think about a seal, you think about something that seals you in, that surrounds you, and that's part of what Ephesians, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians when he says, you have received the seal of the Holy Spirit, not just the authenticating Mark, but also this, this spirit now guards you in the faith. And he does that in two ways. But let's look first. You might think, okay, if he seals me to keep me, then perhaps you know, he can keep anyone from getting to me from the outside and, and pulling me out away from him. But what if I want to break the seal myself from the inside? What, what if I just want to get out? Well, listen to what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 say, talking about the same idea. And you'll notice here that it's God the Father who's doing this work. And in Ephesians, it's the Spirit doing this work. Remember we said that the, that the work of the Spirit is not exclusively always the Spirit's, right? That there's a, there's a joint effort here often. So we see this, Ephesians, uh, sorry, First uh, Peter chapter one, verse three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see the born again there? That's the regenerating work, right? And how are we born again? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He rose and so we can be raised Now, the regenerating work, it's talking about there from the gospel. Then verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. All right, so we've been born again, and we've been born again. That's a present reality. It's a past tense activity. But then we are born to what? To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and it's being kept. It's being kept in heaven. So the question becomes, Tell me more then, kept how? It says, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be, ready to be revealed in the last time. Being guarded through faith. In other words, what that's telling us, there it's the Father doing the work, and Ephesians is the Spirit doing the work. That sealing work that the Spirit does is the guarding work referred to here that the Father does. He is able to guard us in the faith. And that word guard can be used in two ways throughout the Scriptures. You find it used two ways. And I think here we can take it as both. It's a, it's a both and, not an either or here. It means guarded in the sense that we can be kept from attack, that no one can attack us from the outside, guarded from attack from the outside. It can also be used to mean guarded from keeping from getting out, keeping someone from escaping, right? Think about the fence you put around your yard to keep your dog in and others out, right? Right? So what Peter is telling us here is this guarding work that God does is a work by which he keeps any spiritual force of evil, any entity, any worldly philosophy from getting in and pulling us out from inside Christ, yes? But it also means that he prevents those who are inside from ever getting out. 
Now, you might think, okay, I mean, the fence is a bit of a crude analogy because are we really, are we really being kept by God? Are we being kept by the Holy Spirit? Are we being sealed in in such a way that he just keeps us by force? That he's just saying, you're mine and you're not gonna go anywhere? And the answer to that is no. It's not a, you're on lockdown and you're never getting out, but rather he keeps us by giving us a taste of joy and eternal goodness that is so rich that we never wanna leave. He keeps us through joy, not through, not through force. And I'll show you where I get that from because it's in the next verse, in verse 14 in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 and 14. So here's what we find. The Holy Spirit keeps us in Christ, doesn't imprison us, but overwhelms us with joy. In verse 14, what we found is this. After verse 13, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That word guarantee there means down payment. That's what it literally means. He is the down payment. In other words, the guarantee that we'll receive the inheritance is that we've already received a down payment of that inheritance and are beginning to experience a taste of our full inheritance already now through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, what he does is he serves as a down payment on what will fully be ours one day. All the love of God that we will one day experience, we are getting a down payment on that now. We are tasting it now. All the joy that will be ours, all the purity that will be ours, all of the things that we will receive as an inheritance from God, we have received a down payment of them through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us now. Now, just think about that because the Holy Spirit is a down payment, so to speak, on our full inheritance that we're going to one day receive. Why would we not want to develop a daily interaction with that Spirit? Why would I not want to every day say, Holy Spirit, I wanna know you more. Everything you wanna do and speak and be about today, I wanna, I wanna do and receive and be about today. I, I want to know you so closely because you are the down payment on my future inheritance. And I want as much of that down payment as I can get now. Don't, don't you want that? Don't you want as much of a down payment on the joy and the love and the peace and the purity of God that will be yours one day fully in eternity? Don't you want as much of that as a down payment as you can get right now? That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter one there when he says he, he is the guarantee where the Holy Spirit is present as a down payment, there is no doubt that the full inheritance will one day be received and you can begin to taste it now. Now go back to how does the Holy Spirit keep us? The Holy Spirit, part of the Holy Spirit's keeping work is to cause that taste of eternity, that down payment to be so rich and so good that we long and love being in Christ. He causes us to persevere in Christ by giving us that foretaste, that down payment of our eternity. Are you with me, church? That's, that's how that works. And then there's a couple of examples of that. The, the, I'll tell you the other way Jesus talked about it in John chapter seven, verses 37 through 39. I don't know if you remember this, but in John chapter seven, he's at this feast and it says as the feast is kind of coming to its climax, Jesus stands up and he pronounces basically a, kind of a blessing and he says, Again, John, if you're taking notes, John chapter seven, verse 37 through 39, he says, for all who thirst, come. He says, if you're thirsty, come and receive living water. And then it says, he said that about the Holy Spirit whom was yet to come. 
said the Holy Spirit will become like rivers of living water flowing out of the heart of a person. And so Jesus is talking about that in advance of sending the Holy Spirit after his resurrection and ascension, he would then send the Spirit and he would say for all who believe, for all who are in Christ, the Holy Spirit will then be like, will be like a river of living water flowing out of the heart. And for years, I thought of that, church, I thought of that as a statement about my ability to minister on the Spirit's behalf, that he would be, that, or on God's behalf, that the Spirit would move through me like a rushing river and, and kind of, you know, splash onto others, right? And move into, and I don't think that's untrue, but in the context, I realized, after years of thinking of it that way, that I was missing the context. Because the context is Jesus has just said, if you are thirsty, come and drink. So what he's just said is, and now the Holy Spirit will become a river of living water flowing out of your heart. Yes, I think that does mean it will touch on others and minister to them. But primarily what he's getting at there is the Holy Spirit, when he resides in you, will so satisfy you that you won't look to any other kind of water for your satisfaction. You will be so, you will have your thirst so quenched for meaning and purpose and joy when the Holy Spirit lives in you that you won't need any other water. It's the same thing really that he said to the woman at the well in John chapter four, when he said, if you'd asked me, if you knew who was talking to you and asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So again, there's just a numerous places. That's Jesus talking about it. It's the same idea as Ephesians 1.14 here. And before we're done, I wanna give you one example one example of a kind of down payment work that the Holy Spirit does that keeps us in Christ, that makes us so satisfied, this idea that we're talking about, how he fences us in with joy. That's the, that's the phrase I might have you remember. He fences us in with joy, right? Not with barbed wire. So in Romans 5, we find one of these works that the Spirit does, and then we're gonna come to communion, come to the table. But an example of the Spirit giving a down payment of eternal love and joy is found in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. And that down payment is this. The Holy Spirit keeps us by guiding us through suffering. So look at what it says in Romans 5, 3 through 5. It says, more than, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And here's what I want you to get. What Paul is doing, he's addressing this idea uh, that when we suffer, the normal human reality is that we feel a bit of shame, perhaps more than a bit, when we suffer. And often that's because we feel like we did something to cause that, or we feel rejected, alone, isolated. But shame, for a variety of reasons, is the, is the natural response to suffering. And what Paul is saying is that suffering, rather than producing shame, rather than being ashamed when we suffer, we are actually able to have hope when we suffer, that that's the reality for a Christian, that the world might look and go, you know, you're silly to feel this way, but the Christian says, I'm able to experience hope in the midst of suffering. And you know, he, he draws a line, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character hope, but it just draw the line from suffering to hope. Because he's saying, 
When you suffer, you can experience hope, but then he tells us why that's the case. Most of the time we focus on the, that line of suffering produces endurance and that produces character and that produces hope. We focus on that, but we miss what he says next. Why does suffering produce hope for the Christian? Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts and who has done that according to Romans 5 verse 5? Through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God as part of that down payment that he gives us of the eternal joy that is ours in Christ so that he would keep us in Christ. Part of what he does is when we suffer, he allows us to experience hope because he has poured love into our hearts so that the person who suffers without Christ experiences a hopelessness, but the person who suffers in Christ for the sake of righteousness experiences rather than the world on the outside going, you are silly to feel any sense of hope right now. What's happening internally is that the Spirit is pouring God's love into your heart more and more and more so that your internal experience is really disjointed from your external one where suffering is happening here, but on the inside as the suffering happens, God's love is only affirmed more and more in the midst of that suffering through his Spirit dwelling in you so that in the midst of it, you actually end up doing what this text says, rejoicing in that suffering because through it you now experience more of the love of God because here's the guarantee of this text. The experience of God's love that you will have in suffering will always outweigh the suffering. You will always experience a richer, deeper, fuller experience of God's love because the Holy Spirit pours it out in us and therefore fills us with hope you will always experience the richness of God's love in a way that exceeds the difficulty of your suffering. Now for some of you, I say that, and I know you're thinking, that has not been the reality right now. Hang on and cry out to God and seek after him and make yourself available to the spirit because if the word of God is true, then this is true. The love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Which means that when you suffer a friend, tune your ears because the primary message, when you suffer for the sake of righteousness, the primary message God's Spirit will be speaking to you is this word right here. I love you, 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 and let that fill you with hope because your inheritance is on its way. I think I've told you this before. We'll close with this. In fact, servers, if you're serving communion, come on up. I'm pretty sure I've told you this before. My kids, I don't know how I got started, but, but years ago, you know, I would... I would ask Kenley, our first, I would say, hey, how, how, much, how much do I love you? And, you know, I think she started saying so much, but then she started saying big much, so much. You know, I don't, I, and, I, and so we have, it's just become the tradition in our house. I will regularly now just say to my kids, hey, I have a question for you. And they will just say big much, so much. <laughs> hey, I have a question for you. We know dad. Big much, so much. How much do I love you? Big much, so much. 
I said, don't ever forget it. And Deacon right now is really cute because he goes, don't you get it either. <laughs> he means forget it. I'm, don't you forget it either, Dad. I said, I won't, buddy. I won't, buddy. How much does God love you, church? Big much, so much. The Spirit testifies. The Spirit testifies. Big much, so much. Don't you forget it. Don't you forget it.